Hello, welcome to the episode number number 92. It's obviously been a while since my mouth has made those noises. <laughs> welcome to the At YouTube podcast. Episode number 92 is actually what I should be saying, uh, where we talk all things YouTube, album news, tour dates, and also birth dates of album news releases of sorts. So um, I'm joined by, uh, hopefully if, you're, if all the widgets and gadgets are working and you're hearing this all right, I'm joined by three folks on the panel today. I've got Aaron Govern. Welcome, Aaron. Hello. Hello. Uh, he'll be the deep voice that you hear from across the pond. Mm-hmm. I've also got Becky Myers. Welcome back, Becky. Hey, y'all. She'll be the one with the accent that you'll hear. <laughs> but more of an accent. I guess I, no, I shouldn't say that. Sort of. Everybody has an accent. I just don't think I do. But And Christopher, welcome back. Hello, hello. Hello, Chris. So hopefully you guys can keep us separated with the same name as you're listening to the podcast. <laughs> uh, so how are, you, how are you guys doing? It's been a while since we've had the podcast, first of all, I guess. Any, uh, uh, any fun YouTube-related things besides the the album that we're going to be discussing uh, in your life since last we talked. Well, well yeah, just coasting. <laughs> if, yeah, coasting. Uh, Waiting. Nice time. To be, do, you know, do you know what? I think it's great just to have some downtime from you too, from the live shows and everything. <laughs> I've got to be honest with you, both That's financially true. and and socially, it's, <laughs> it's a nice time to reflect on the last few years, which have been very, very busy. Yeah. Not- yeah. I, I, I feel the same way. I, um, with, with my, with my work, with, with my music analysis research and everything, I'm, I'm, I've gotten a chance to start new projects and explore new music besides U2. And yes, there is music outside U2 and it's, <laughs> and there's a lot of it and it's really, really, and some of it's really, really good. So, um, it's, what, it's there nice is? To, yeah, <laughs> imagine that. Um, but have no fear U2 fans because, uh, this project does also incorporate U2's music because I can't not incorporate U2's music nice. into my research. <laughs> it's in your DNA. Exactly. And of course, now there's, now there's talk of them playing Down Under, so yeah, we'll see cow. where that goes. Yeah, so if, you're, if you've are if you been living under, or not under, Down Under Rock, I guess, or whatever, the analogy is there, but uh, there's rumors and, and uh, stuff about hap- uh, U2 jo- taking the Joshua Tree tour maybe Down Under, or something happening anyway, yeah. Australia area, uh, later this, where are we here? Later this year, right? Yeah, 2019. Yes. It's, it feels like we're going back to 2017 with Joshua Tree Tour, but um, yeah, discussions. But uh, that's the rumor anyways. Obviously, don't book flights or anything until you know <laughs> for sure. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and even as, uh, yeah, as, obviously nothing set in stone until, t- until tickets are announced and anything like that. So, But it's exciting times for sure. For I know there's a large contingent of awesome uh, U2 fans in that side of the world who are desperate uh, for a little U2 action whatever form it may take, whether it's a Joshua Tree tour or otherwise, I'm sure they'll be happy to receive them over there. Um, and uh, also the other thing I know, um, many folks were tweeting about this, but uh, the the U2.com account downloads are starting to show mm. from the yeah, uh, yeah, subscriber they, they, I, I yeah. didn't notice until earlier this afternoon because I had uh, an email come through from U2.com, but on reflection, looking at the website, it seems to have been posted presumably sometime yesterday. But uh, yeah, they're available and they sound brilliant. They do sound really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So even it's... though, even though one of the versions, I mean, the 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 live version of Little Things is not my favorite. Um, I, I am I'm heavily enamored with the with the studio version. So um, it's a little too poppy for me, but I do like getting um, new versions of things. So um, it is, it is nice to have another, another live track in the collection. Yep. Yeah. I love that song. So I'm happy with it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, so Little Things and Song for Someone from back in 2015 uh, Ugh, were yes. released. So going way back into the archives now, it's already four years old, <laughs> almost, I guess. Isn't that weird? Like, wow. oddly enough, I've written about both of those. Nice. I yeah. did a, like a song nice. about Song for Someone. And then when we did the wrap up, yeah. I think I wrote about Little Things and crazy. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. fun? I love yeah. it. And uh, if you're if you haven't visited at u2.com, which obviously this podcast is affiliated with and part of that crew, uh, at u2.com uh, has a new website. This is actually I think we talked about it last episode when Matt and I did a 2018 year in recap or whatever. Um, but just in case you hadn't checked it out lately, at u2.com has a new website that you can visit and peruse and make sure it looks okay in whatever weird browser you might happen to use in whatever part of the world you're in. Um, so let us know if there's any issues with viewing things, but, uh, everything should be running smoothly by now, hopefully. And, um, and you can, uh, yeah, check out what's, what's going on in there. And in, in the meantime, lots of stuff, lots of the, our back catalog, I guess, is very vast, rich, and worth, uh, exploring if you've never gone back into the histories of the various articles and, and things that have been written on there. So, um, all the folks who I think, um, uh, uh, I think even I have a couple words on the site, but I was going to say all the folks who've been on the podcast anyways have articles in various forums on at youtube.com. So very much worth checking out in this YouTube downtime. So, but the reason we're here, the, to talk about, uh, to back on the podcast today anyways, for sure is to talk about the 10 year anniversary of a little album called No Line on the Horizon. Um, so we're, we're not, we did a song by song review of the album back in episode 49 of the podcast. So we're not going to necessarily do that. Although obviously the, the fellow my fellow panelists are are more than welcome to go deep and mm-hmm. and uh, long on a on a song if they're they sort they're so inclined but um yeah that one you can find goodstuff.fm slash atu2 slash 49 to listen to that um i don't know where any of you, i think aaron was on that one i forgot to check who else was on that episode mm. yes was, uh, yeah Elizabeth sherry I, I, and uh, sherry and was episode 49 crikey that's a few podcasts back, isn't it? That's back in yeah, 2017. That one. It's yeah. very good. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll eventually start doing reviews of our podcast reviews. Uh, we'll just sort of circle in on ourselves. But uh, How very meta. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but yeah, anyways, I, I guess going from uh, what I see anyways, Christopher, in, in sort of the circle here that I'm looking at, I don't know what folks out there are seeing in order, but uh, Christopher, any sort of thoughts of that? What I posed to the at you two staff anyways, for being on this and, and we'll have some audio clips from a few folks as well, who sent in clips who couldn't be here. Just kind of like what, what your impressions were of the album when it came out. And then also more, I guess, more importantly, relative relevant to this discussion is how do you think it stands up now, 10 years on at its 10th birthday enters almost a you know preteen era. <laughs> uh, where, where, are your, where does no line on the horizon sit for you, Christopher? Um, you know, it, it's such an interesting album for me personally. Um, this this album came out in 09, and that's when my then-girlfriend, who is now my wife and mother of my three wonderful and handful of children, um, that's, that's when we got together. So she, you know, we fell in love um, with each other as No Line on the Horizon, um, uh, you know, as, as, as we got familiar with No Line on, on the Horizon. So we... I and we think of this album as um, you know, it, it kind of mirrors our relationship. Um, you know, she she was first introduced to the U2 fandom through No Line on the Horizon. She she followed U2 as uh, you know on on the radio and with the hits. But um, No Line was the first album that she really got to know through me because um, I had started working with at U2 and I had just finished my U2 dissertation and all that stuff. And so she was like, Oh my God, what is this? And what so I was like, well, this is, uh, 
this is U2 fandom, I think. And I had I had no idea what it really was until I actually joined at U2 two years later. So this this album, it, it, it means a whole lot to me uh, personally, um, not just musically and music theoretically. And so she's uh, stayed, obviously she stayed your wife, but she stayed a U2 <laughs> yes, fan to this day as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, Sorry. yes, she has. I, yeah. I, I, I have not scared her off. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> That's good to see. Uh, how about you, Aaron? Uh, what, uh, what do you recall? Obviously, No Line wasn't your first U2 album or first U2 experience. No, by any no. Means, but, uh, no, no, not by any means, no. <laughs> I, uh, well, my little background to the album is that, I mean, I, I've always been a bit of a nerdy U2 fan. And because I have an Irish connection with my family and everybody living in Ireland. And uh, I, I confess to going over to like day trips to Hanover Quay. And uh, in April 2008, I went over and knew, obviously knowing the band were going to be there anyhow and uh, met Lanoir, Danny Lanoir, outside the studio in, in the morning as they were going in. And uh, I said to him, how's the album coming on? He says, about another three or four days recording. Wow, I said, that's great. When do, you, when do you think I'll be out? He said, probably August, September. So I was a little bit disappointed <laughs> that, that a few months later it was still going on and on and on. So I thought this album would never come out. But, you know, that's typical of U2, isn't it? I mean, there's never yeah. a straightforward recording of an album. They bounce tracks in and out, I think, anyhow, in terms of yeah. what went on the album eventually. And some songs have struggled over to Songs of Innocence. So that's my one of my memories of it. And uh, But the other memory, really, is just the excitement of having all of this collector um, collector yeah. stuff that came out with the with the album because the box sets really started with this album and I think they set the standard uh, in terms of the the releases of new albums because you know we'll probably talk a little bit about it later but it's a transitional period in music no doubt no two ways about it because at this point in time really this is where we start seeing the the movement from um, physical releases like CDs and cassettes and uh, vinyl, obviously, long, long uh, disappeared, but moving into the digital area. So I think this was a really important release for for you too. They were on a new record label as well in in Europe on Mercury. They left Ireland um, for this album release. So this was a, a new venture for them, and I think they they succeeded in terms of the way they promoted this album, much more so than they did probably with Songs of Innocence. But that's another story. Um, <laughs> Oops. So that's that's my memory of it in particular, and of course the album is, in my opinion, it's it, it's pretty much my favourite album. I have to be honest with you. I always say Acton Baby, but when push comes to shove, I think No Line is the one that I listen to probably more than any other U two album. No two ways. Wow! Wow! Nice. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and obviously when we we when I put out the call for coming on a podcast to talk about No Line on the Right, it's not like people who aren't fans of the podcast jump or, or fans of sorry of the album jump at the opportunity to come on. So we're a little bit biased in terms of obviously all four of us I think are are fans of the album. Um and, yeah, yeah. But, and so you won't hear a lot of trash talking I don't think of songs and stuff in this album, but it's still uh, in this podcast, but it still is interesting to hear that it is like one of your if not the most played album of of their catalog cuz it it definitely like for me it has the the impression I get anyways is because it wasn't super popular with the non U two fans in my life I feel like it is sort of like a low, not a lower quality but a, definitely a lower uh, popularity uh, in terms of the album itself and what people remember of it and uh, obviously just like you know the get on the boots kind of sound and that's that's where it stopped for a lot of people but how about you Becky what's what's your <laughs> recollection of uh, of it um, well personally. 
when this album came out, I couldn't wait for it, probably like most U2 fans. But it happened to be the time that I was going through some very intense personal turmoil in my marriage. And um, so I lost myself in this album and refound myself partly. But also, I think this album is highly, highly underappreciated. And I think um, I get it from a pop sense why it didn't like chart (laughs) really dramatically and i think they made some mistakes in terms of a few things like releasing boots as their first single which i I will say that's probably one of my least favorite songs on the album i like the lyrics but i don't like how it's presented in the music personally some of it but um you know overall i think it's just a solid solid album in terms of the stories and the characters and the guitar playing for me is, gosh, you know, uh, the edge just kills it on here. The rhythm section, they're just so good musically on it. And I, Chris, you can definitely talk to it much more, um, should we say academically than I can. I can just say <laughs> I love it. And like the edges solos, good Lord. And uh, Larry just beating the heck out of the drums. But I think um, in a good way. And I think it's vastly underappreciated. Uh, I think it's one of my favorite albums in their entire catalog. Um, I will have to say there's a couple others, like Actune Babies up there for me as well, Aaron. Um, but I think it's underappreciated. And I'm hoping that today more people see the value in it and the artistry. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, yeah, if nothing else, I, I hope through the even just this podcast, if you haven't whatever method you're listening to music spin spin up the record or put it in <laughs> spotify or wherever you happen to listen to music throw the the album on again and just like relive it uh a bit and uh, i think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how good it is even if you maybe stopped listening after the tour was done let's say or whatever reason maybe you put it away yeah. um, i know right. some listeners uh sent tweets in and uh try and throw them in as we as we talk but at sir edward gray said <laughs> Maybe a little controversial, but he said, let's face it, this is the last time The Edge was seriously on fire. <laughs> there are plenty of great guitar <laughs> solos and sounds on this record. If oh, I could no. only have one, give me risk over relevance. No line is a beauty. Ten years on, how about you, risk okay. or relevance? So, um, which I think that's where you're, kind of what Becky's getting at, too, is like obviously great guitar stuff from Edge. I, I would debate, too, whether he's this is the last time he's been on fire. But um, that aside, I think it was a, a, a bit of a risk they took with it. And... Uh, and you can debate whether it's risk because they are averse to just like settling on a direction and keep you know switching producers and have to kind of <laughs> by default take yeah. risks that way uh, or what the reasoning was. But uh, yeah. Well, for me, there's a number of things about the album. I mean, it certainly has some very unique edge. Guitar. Uh, oh. Certainly things like moment of, of surrender, you know, the, He's got a very almost like a David Gilmour sound on the guitar, which he's never tried before. So there's lots of experimental type stuff there from from Edge, which are, is really unique. Yeah, there's a lot of different styles on the album. I mean, Boots is a very very fast song, uh, beats per minute. I don't know how what it is. It's probably around 160, and it's almost too fast, which yeah. is probably why it didn't come across as as uh, in the way that the other calling card singles like Beautiful Day and uh, Vertigo, which again are quite fast songs but nowhere near as fast well, as uh, as boots i i heard boots as vertigo part two you yeah. know like the texture is very similar yeah. and i and i think that's part of the reason why boots didn't do as well is because it sounds like almost like a vertigo sequel it did. a lot of fans said wait we've heard this before and and 
and yes, of course, YouTube has a, has a style, obviously, and so. But you know, they sound really, really similar structurally, texturally, um, and yeah. maybe for some fans, it was either too close to it or they were expecting something vastly different. Which Becky, I I agree with you. I I don't think Boots as the first single got the got the album off on the right foot. Mm-hmm. I, I I mean, Breathe or Magnificent would have been. To be fair, the band themselves have acknowledged that now. I think Edge was the one yes. who really promoted yeah. Boots as being the, the lead single. And they've acknowledged that. Yeah. yeah, they did. Yeah, there's a few comments I'll just throw in here from at uh, Rice 78 said, if Gets, Get On Your Boots wasn't the first single of the album, would it be, would be considered greater as a whole? Moment of Surrender is a masterpiece. Breathe, magnificent stand-up comedy, and Cedars of Lebanon are stellar. Um, where was the other one here? Still remember, at Nate Scoggins says, still remember buying Get On Your Boots at Midnight, so maybe the single when it came out, so I guess pre-release single before the album. Mm. Um, and freaking out about that breakdown in the middle section, still the best, only good part of that song. <laughs> that is a good part. Uh, yeah, sure really good part. And uh, at, was, but at, going the other way, I guess, at Buzz One Daddy said, I still see nothing wrong with liking Boots. However, my favorite track off this record has always been Cedars of Lebanon. With, wish the 360 shows had ended with this. I actually remember hearing this on mm. satellite radio at work back in 2010, so... Yeah, it's one. one of, it is one of those divisive boots. songs. Sorry, go ahead, Aaron. Sorry, yeah. one thing I'll say about Boots live, it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. No two ways about it. Much, much well, better than record. You know, I think this album as a whole, live, uh, did well um, mm-hmm. on stage, and I, I lament the fact that the band kind of, or it seemed like the band gave up on the album because, as <sighs> as as we might talk about later, the 360 tour turned from turned from a um, from a no line promo tour to an Octung Baby um, reunion tour, if as it were, right? Yeah. Like a, a, a reminiscence tour, or maybe they were using 360 to get ready for Glastonbury, you know, where right. where, where they played a heavily Octung Baby set. So, but you know, I, I thought I thought a lot of the tracks from from No Line were really good live. Um, I mean, I thought Breathe was a great show opener, mm. um, and magnificent to this day. I I, I I love that song. Abs- I mean, it, it's it has it's it's modern U two with classic touches. I mean, how, you can't go wrong with it. I I think so. Um, yeah, I, I I wish they gave that that album um, a, a fairer shake live. I think part of the issue there, um, and I'm is was the timing of the tour and that Glastonbury had to be uh, delayed by a year, wasn't it? Mm. Um, so. I think because they were out there so long, it it was an evolution of the tour in a sense. Um, I might be wrong, but remember they came back to North America. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, they did yeah. in 2011. Yeah, yeah, that's where we met. Yep. <laughs> so, oh, exactly. No? Or well, no, we were in the stadium. We didn't meet. I met Jill. Um, <laughs> but that's the year all three of us came on to staff. I think, right, Aaron. Yeah, yeah, around 2010. Yeah, it's our class. Yeah, so, but I do think, um, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Perhaps the Bono back injury in 2010 didn't help really with the because uh, it stopped stopped and started in the tour. So there was a little. Yeah, I think that was part of it with the timing. Um, Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, comes down to Bono some in some way or another. (laughs) (laughs) Much to Larry's chagrin, I'm sure. Exactly. Uh, at Brian Anonymous right. said, uh, here are my thoughts. Let's convince you two to play an acoustic white as snow in an intimate MTV and plug desk setting with keyboards, best unsung track on the album, which. Oh, 
I don't think we could have a collection of songs that would be unbelievably good in that setting. Oh, yeah. But yeah, White is Snow. It's yeah. interesting, Aaron, that you you brought up the idea of it being recorded uh, in Ireland at Hanover, and because I think I mean the the imagery and the the sort of vibe they wanted to present, even though obviously they did record it in, in a few different places, is the the Moroccan kind of like that's where we got this inspiration, and that's what the album is, and it's not I don't associate it with being um, you know an, an Irish record as much. I mean, obviously the band is Irish. I'm not mm-hmm. <laughs> disputing that, mm-hmm. but just in terms of the, my visual sort of what I associate with it is like the, and they have the sounds and stuff of Morocco on it. Um, and it's kind of much more that mm-hmm. vibe as opposed to, you know, the sort of gritty, dirty Ireland. <laughs> no offense to Ireland. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, no, I understand. I think, I think there's only a few tracks really ultimately that made it from uh, Morocco and known Cola was the obvious one that came through. But I mean, the, the, the one of the reasons they went to Morocco in any case really was because of the Eno and Lamar uh, collaboration. And forget, we forget actually that this is actually not just really you two. There's Eno and Lamar on seven right. of the 11 tracks as right. co-writers, even writing lyrics, mm-hmm. let alone producing whatever. So this is a big, big contribution. We've got Terry Lawless on the album as well, the, the U2 Underworld yeah. keyboardist also involved. So there's quite a lot of uh, different things going on. And uh, obviously with Eno, you know, is uh, produced on the album, but he's only really involved in the in the Morocco part. He wasn't involved in Dublin at all. So the the the, the parts that they recorded um, in the early part of two thousand and eight were really just a few weeks in uh, in Morocco. So the vast majority is in in HQ in Dublin, uh, as you're aware. But um, yeah, the I think um, Steve Lillywhite got a little bit in, in trouble with Paul McGuinness. And the record label at the time, because he he said that you know they didn't get the 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 African Moroccan sound that they were hoping to get, but um, I don't know. It, it, there's quite a few tracks on there which sound so different that uh, you know, the, particularly Fez being born. Yeah, yeah. You know, they they do have a, a certain um, more Eastern feel about them, I think, than African feel than than anything else they've done in their repertoire. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed, yeah, totally. definitely. And also, I was rereading, uh, you know, the credits in the book and the interview, um, the interviews that Catherine Owens did with them. She was the the designer for the the box set, I, I guess, the lead design, not designer, but she coordinated the whole effort. And um, the Edge apparently worked with Rick Rubin early on. So there, there was some of that influence in this album mm-hmm. too. I have totally forgot about that, but um, I'm not sure how much of that came through. But you know, Larry does his loops and sends them off, and then the Edge works. He was in Malibu for a lot of this mm-hmm. before the band did actually get into the recording sessions. So they he brought that in, and um, I'm not sure. Maybe Chris, you can answer this better. Like how much of that survived or his influence, <laughs> but mm-hmm. before it got to uh, to you know, in Lenoir. So, so interesting. So, so you two had a history of working with Ruben well before songs of innocence. Yes. At least because, because, because yeah. I remember a lot of they, the hype um, leading yes. up to the release of songs they, of innocence they, was, they worked with, uh, with Ruben. Ruben and then, so, but, but that was five or six years before. So yeah, yeah they, I think right. they worked with Ruben, didn't they? In 2006 for the 18 singles, they did the green oh, day project. That, yeah. That makes that's so, right. So they, they oh, spent, the green day thing. That's yeah. where it was. Right. It was right. for that makes yeah. when they worked with, uh, Billy Joe Armstrong, when they worked with green day, yeah, uh, yeah, for the intention was to work with Ruben on this, on this album, on no line, the Horizon. 
And, uh, you know, Rubens has a very, very different work uh, production <laughs> technique. <laughs> yes. He, yeah. he visits, really. He visits what you're doing and makes some suggestions. Yeah. I don't think that's going to work with you two in, every, in any case. They, they need somebody to really, you know, haul them over the line. Uh, yeah. Rubens. Yeah. Right. Just, I was going to say beat them into submission, but that's not quite right. <laughs> Taskmaster. They need to exactly. crack in the whip. I think, I think if Ruben was still involved, the album wouldn't have been out yet. <laughs> so they, they abandoned Ruben, basically. Yeah, there's in, a quote from uh, yeah. Adam, on, in, at least on the Wikipedia page, of about Ruben saying, once we have a song, we're interested in the atmospherics and the tones and the overdubs and the different stuff you can do with it. Things that Rick was not in the slightest bit interested in. <laughs> he was interested in getting it from embryonic stage to a song that could be mixed and put on a record. So probably yeah. actually it might've been the other way, Christopher, where it might've been quicker if they had actually listened to him and just, you know, he didn't want to do the overdubs and adding oh, extra yeah. stuff. Right. Which you can see, like, right. you know, I could see in, in 20 years or whatever the number is when let's say, God forbid, but obviously at some point somebody is going to not be around anymore in the band and Bono's by himself and needs to resurrect his career or something a la Johnny Cash and Rick Rubens happens to walk by <laughs> oh and they <laughs> record some amazing album really? together, but we'll, we won't dwell there too long. <laughs> don't do that, Bono. If you're listening, don't do that. <laughs> future please. Bono. Yeah. yeah, please don't do that. Future Bono. That's yeah. this Bono telling future Bono. I've always maintained that there's there's a good acoustic album in Edge and Bono together somehow, uh, not like deliberately, not, not like a copy of the Johnny Cash stuff, obviously, but just something in there where they could have a lot of fun. But uh, I don't think that's coming anytime soon. So, <laughs> um, Adam's Kimono actually on Twitter asked said uh, favorite no line on the horizon. <laughs> hey, Adam's kimono, love Tra- you. Track is breathe. There's three things I need yes. to know: Kimono, Kimono, Kimono. <laughs> uh, so I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely a great track. So, um, but yeah, the, the, it's, it is interesting how those things, like the way that, you know, the randomness sort of, of approaching Rick Rubin, it not working out, that delays them recording a bit longer. So then maybe Lanois and, and uh, Eno are available because maybe they weren't before. Now they are, let's say, I don't know if how specific this stuff is, but then, and even Lily White too, to be able to be involved in stuff. Whereas maybe he was with uh, Dave Matthews band up to that point or whatever. <laughs> um <laughs> And, and, and so I guess in light of that, Christopher, even as you approach it, you know, music theory wise, musically, what, what yeah. kind of things are, are you drawing out of the album and, and whether it's specific songs you want to touch on or, or just an overall vibe of, of how they recorded? Yeah, well, you know, this, I, I've been thinking about this actually for a long time, probably since, um, shortly after the album came out and, um, you know, the, it, the, the, the album wasn't received, um, as universally as, lots of the other albums um in 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 their catalog and you know i there there are excellent tracks there so i i i always wonder why 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 it didn't land and um for me um the track order i think maybe mm. if it, if if the tracks were organized differently maybe the album would have done better so you know they made a big deal about um first being in morocco so why not lead with fez being born that that introduces the entire aesthetic of the album and it, 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 it would function kind of like um, uh, love is all we have left on songs of experience, right? It's this, it's this one track that sounds different from anything else, but it serves as an, as an introductory track. And then you go from Fez to no line on the horizon, you know, and, and I've, I've, I've actually worked with um, I've actually played with this in, in some sound editing software. And if you two had treated no line more like a concept album, and if they eliminated the silence or the breaks between tracks and just had 
you know, one track bleed into the next. So you start with Fez and then you go into No Line on the Horizon and then Boots. Um, and then Why Does Snow is a little come down. And then you start building it up again. Um, and you and you have um, I'll Go Crazy. And then Moment of Surrender is the it's a climax. But because it's so soft, it, it functions kind of like a like a like a like a paradoxical climax. And then you really um, you really uh, establish momentum for the end of the album after Moment of Surrender with Stand Up Comedy, Breathe, Magnificent, those three rockers all in a row. Yeah. And then cool. and then you kind of come down for for the for the signature <laughs> for the Sorry. signature um, for the signature uh, slow ending of a U2 album with Unknown Caller and Cedars of Lebanon. I think right. I think that track order might have or a different track order, that one being one example of them, might have helped the album be uh, I don't know, it, it it feels sorry in, 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 in the new running order. It feels more cohesive in the original running order. It feels a little disjointed to me. So, yeah. um, but that's just me. So I, I think know. that's a, I think that's a good shouty there with the, with the reorder. You know, I'm going to be up all night now, don't you? Doing my own <laughs> yeah. version of the CD. So thanks very much. Well, hey, I was going to say, nope. if you, uh, I don't know which, if you do Spotify or Apple music or whatever, but even just like putting out a playlist or a reorder, Christopher's yes. reordered no line, a new line you know on the horizon. I, I will make an Apple Music playlist and I go. will tweet that out. And okay. um, I'll, I'll try and, and throw I it in the show. Notes. No Line Horizon reordered. Yeah. yeah. Totally. I, I, I agree with Christopher. I mean, the, the, the first four tracks, irrespective of the order, they're just killer tracks. They're fantastic. And then I'll just look at the CD we have I'll Go Crazy, followed by Get On Your Boots and Stand Up Comedy. And, you know, they, they don't work. They work better, I think, in the way probably Christopher's just explained. But following each other i don't think they work so well at all i mean stand-up comedy i don't really that's probably the thing the weakest track on the album is basically led zeppelin and i love led yeah. zeppelin but i don't want you two to be led zeppelin <laughs> um you can know. hear edges uh you can hear well that i mean because Ed, Ed, edge had just worked on um it, it, it might, might get loud yeah. right. so he he probably had zeppelin on Zeppelin on the brain when they yeah. up comedy, which is which is why it's but you know that's a that's a good old fashioned rock song and mm. um, there aren't a lot of or there, there aren't any just straight up rock songs on No Line and and I think coming from Atomic Bomb, which was a rock guitar centered record, you know mm. that's it's a nice um, it's a nice carryover. Although you know. You're certainly not the only one who, who doesn't uh, who, who isn't too fond of stand-up comedy, but um, I I happen to love it. But um, but you know, to each his own, right? <laughs> and that's that is right. the interesting thing. Just like I was saying before, of like the random the sort of serendipity or randomness of people they run into as influence. We often think of, or I, I catch myself thinking of, you two as like this four-person group bubble that walks around collectively and doesn't, you know, only interacts with each other musically and then go have supper with their family and then come back and music, you know, but obviously things like that happen. Like, um, there's that quote with Bono playing, you know, hitching a ride with somebody and they put on Joshua tree and it was like, there's no bass or whatever, no, no oomph to it. And that's where it sort of act tongue. They wanted some like deep low end stuff. And so, yeah, totally. You can see edge sitting there with like Jack black or Jack, Jack white, Jack, which yeah. Jack, my Jack, Jack White. White. Yeah, Jack White. White yeah, Jack White and, <laughs> and Jimmy Page. And they're like pulling out these like intense, like guttural riffs on their guitar. And Edge yep. is like, here's Streets. And <laughs> it doesn't, like it has the, in a stadium it rocks, but like just playing that on a guitar, it doesn't have the like kick you in the wherever's, you know, kind of whatever. <laughs> well, that's so exactly could, what, 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 what happened in the documentary, right? When, when Edge yeah. was showing 
was was playing I Will Follow. And, you know, that that guitar line by itself, without the effects and everything, is nothing special. And and that's that, that that's part of what makes Edge's guitar playing unique. And that's also what he gets a lot of criticism for is that he mm-hmm. Edge is not a shredder by instinct. He can shred, but he doesn't want to. And so when you're in a room with two other guys who all they want to do is shred, yeah. you know, <laughs> Edge kind of stands out for the wrong reasons. But but you know, to 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 criticize Edge for not shredding is to do his 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 brand of guitar playing a disservice because he doesn't focus on that. He focuses on everything else but the light speed technique. So he he focuses on timbre and texture and timing and you know Edge is as much a rhythm guitar player as he's a lead guitar player, which is exceptionally rare in rock. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely got that. Like the he has the bigger picture. I think of the song as more yeah. important than the riff. Whereas those guys are from the get a good riff and then build a song around that, which that's where a song like get on your boots or vertigo is much more like a riff driven song, which makes it unique with you two, obviously um, in terms of their song library um, and style of writing and stuff like that. But um, I, I, before I forget, I, we need to throw in some of the other folks here who sent in audio. So let's jump to, we'll go with Colin here first, just in the order they came and, and listen to his thoughts on no line. Happy birthday, No Line on the Horizon. Uh, this album was very important to me because my U2 fandom had sort of waned uh, during the Vertigo tour and the U2, the 18 singles thing. I had grown kind of bored with the musical direction they were going in. Uh, they had done a Back to Basics album with All That You Can't Leave Behind, which was very good, but it seemed like they wanted to stay basic. And... That just wasn't sitting well with me. I like the experimental, weird side of U2 the most. And No Line on the Horizon was a return to form as uh, for me. So um, I, I really needed this album to be really good if I was going to keep being a diehard U2 fan. And also I was going through a lot of personal stuff during the Vertigo tour and all that that made it hard for me to be a U2 fan. And I won't go into details, but there's definitely a, a personal component to that that is uh important so um whenever i hear bono singing uh in the song no line on the horizon the songs in your head are now on my mind you put me on pause i'm trying to rewind reload and replay i feel like he's singing that to me and i of course Mm. he's not but to me that that lyric means the songs that you want us to do are the songs that now i want us to do uh, the kind of music I want to make, um, and we're going to do that for this album and maybe the next one too. And so strap yourself in and enjoy, uh, which I do very much so. Not so much the middle part of the album, uh, the I'll go crazy, get on your boots and stand up comedy. I think that's where the <laughs> album kind of sags. So it's it's not a perfect record, but the first four songs and the last four songs on this album are the really important songs that win me over and uh, or won me over. And I think they still sound fresh today because in large part because they don't perform any of these songs live anymore. So it's the one U2 album, one of the few U2 albums where you can put on and just it's it sounds fresh every time. You're not really comparing the live versions too much. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of this album, and I'm excited to hear you guys talk about it. So thank you. Bye. 
I hope we do it justice, Colin. Mm. But that's an interesting point he raised right there that's at the end take. of like how they don't play it live, and so it does f- sound fresh, which is totally and that even the fact that the the only tour where they should have played it a lot live, they didn't really play it a lot, and so there isn't a lot of familiarity with it the way that obviously even not like streets, obviously, but even st- other stuff that we've heard so much of, and you yeah. kind of the album almost sounds like a downer compared to the live version. Here we don't have that reference point, which is yeah, kind mm. of brilliant, brilliant mm-hmm. take. On. Yeah, I mean. I think if you go to the early shows, which luckily I was able to see in Europe, um, vastly different after they dropped some songs out of this set. So I would say within the first, what, 10 shows, maybe nine shows. Um, I heard him play No Line on the Horizon and Unknown Caller, yep. which were very interesting to hear live. I was happy they played them, but it, they weren't the most exciting songs in a, in a live set. Um, I think Unknown Caller was pretty fun. I was trying to find my version of the video, which I recorded solely for Edge's solo. It's on one of my old, old, old phones and um, <laughs> another computer. And uh, I just didn't have a chance to pull it up. And um, I love his solo at the end. It's very melodic. It's very nice, you know, before they kind of go into the end. And the band did a nice job. Bono did of sort of leading the crowd through that. Oh, oh, you know. And so I liked it live, but I do think I can see why they moved some of them. Um, I think the biggest surprise was uh, the remix on Crazy. And um, Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, let's get real. That was that saved the song. Um, I like it on the album, but when they played it live, it was game over. It was a whole new version of the song and Larry out there, you know, come on. We love that too. We love Larry. (laughs) And, uh, it was fun. So I think, you know, people were went nuts over that part. They went crazy. The set list were the set list for the European part, 2009 and even get into 2010 because even 2010, they started, playing songs that uh, haven't yet been released. North Star, I'm thinking right. of. Every Break and Wave obviously eventually came through as well. But they were really, they really were very, um, very experimental in, in that respect with wanting to do something, you know, a little bit different. And the lots of songs on that tour never been played live before um, or hadn't been played live for a long, long time. Like, you know, here in Scarlet, here in The Unforgettable Fire, whatever, you know. Yeah. They're talking about songs of experience tour, you know, having playing rarities and whatever, but nothing by comparison to to the 360 tour. That was a real deep cut tour in, in that respect. And it's only really, I think, around 2011 when they did that final leg of North America. Yeah, by then, the album is out of sight, out of mind, even for U2 fans in some respects, because it's more than two years old. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, yeah. The, and, you know, the whole tour, Originally was going to be called, I think it was called Get On Your Boots Tour, wasn't it? Or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or Bring something Let Me like In that. The Might be Let Me In The Sound Tour. I can't remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Even let that, me that's the title of my upcoming book. <laughs> Which <laughs> one? Pre order on Amazon. The title of my upcoming book, Let Me In The Sound, the sonic signature of U2. Oh, <laughs> uh, Chris's book. I'm working on It's coming. Yes. But it, nice. even, even that got dropped, really. So, you know, the whole yeah. 360 tour. Um, you know, usually you see you see uh, an album getting toured. At that point, really, the tour really was the tour of the stage, wasn't it? Ultimately, in 2011, <laughs> it, it was completely different. Yeah. Well, and circling back around to the news we talked about at the beginning, I think if I, if 
at u2.com slash tours, which is a great place to go to find out about U2 tours. It certainly is. Is uh, correct, then, and I'm reading it correctly, which is maybe more of the issue, <laughs> is uh, this is the last time, this is the last tour they were in Australasia, like Australia, mm-hmm. New Zealand. Yes. Got hit, or got hit, but got visited. Oceania. By, uh, yeah. by the band. And so, yeah, uh, it's an interesting kind of timeline to all kind of be circling back to at this point. Hmm. Uh, let's jump sure. to maybe hearing what's uh, going. Speaking of jumping, let's go to across the pond to Kenny and his Scottish lilt. <laughs> okay, some musings from Scotland around about no wine. No wine for me is a bit of a complete contradiction. Love the album cover. That kind of almost, if you gaze at it too long, it kind of sucks you in. Um, in terms of. Uh, album content some really great u2 tracks on there no line magnificent possibly you could argue moments as well some very strange offerings as well boots unknown collar um white snow even kind of feels a bit strange in there and well crazy the poppy version of really doesn't do anything for me but it's an album that intrigues me bemuses me captivates me um and sometimes actually frustrates me um however live some of the great u2 songs didn't come off no line and possibly even magnificent and yet others that i was really struggling with like boots and crazy well actually they really work for me so uh, an album that's kind of all over the place in terms of recording and or live versions however some fantastic songs um, and great memories uh, I associate with it, even with the 360 tour, albeit by the time 360 finished, there was very little, no line left to be seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, similar uh, similar vibes, obviously, and, and uh, I just noticed as well uh, one tweet that came in that YouTube Ginger said, fave track was Moment of Surrender and Breathe. This album has so much meaning for me. It was my inspiration when I was making some major life changes and the tour was so good. So uh, it's kind of interesting how that, that sort of reoccurring theme of like um, we've you guys have both alluded to like sort of life life changes happen like I don't know if it's just a 10 year you know a decade is like the sort of perfect time to look back on or legitimately that you know time period in a lot of people's lives was you know in a bit of upheaval and, and, and things like that but at any rate it, it's there's obviously a lot of synergy there so well that was also around the time of the the global financial crisis right mm-hmm. so right. a lot of yeah. us a lot of people were feeling a lot of the same things and I love I love what Kenny said, that he was frustrated, he was confounded, he loved parts of it, he didn't love parts of it. I'm like, it's 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 typical you too, you know? It's, you love him, you hate him, you, you like some of it, you don't like some of it. I mean, it's it it runs the gamut. So mm-hmm. um, it's, in that way, it's the perfect U2 album. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> you have to buy his book to find out the rest. <laughs> you know, I think... Um, do y'all remember, I want to kind of go back to the tour for a second, when we were all like waiting with bated breath, of course, like we do, for tour news and, hey, what's it going to look like? And they had, Bono had said, hey, we're going to go back to an outdoor tour. It's going to be a stadium tour. The first one they'd done since, uh, was it out uh, outdoor? Pop. Uh, um, pop. Yeah. Pop, yeah. yeah. And, um you know, so the the excitement began to build, and then we started seeing pictures of the legs that were being built in Belgium. You know, the claw legs. Everybody's like, "Oh my gosh!" And then when you saw that thing in its entirety, it's like mind blowing. I still think it's one of the coolest stages I have ever seen. And then they built it into the whole space theme and space oddity, and 
you know, talking to the space station. Um, I think to me, just the whole themes that started to build around that was really cool. But what it did, again, is you two set set the bar even higher on building tour stages that blow everyone else away. They're always at the forefront of doing what's new, right? And what's next in terms of technology. And they invest the money in it. They invest the time. They put the people on it. And um, the claw did that. And I sat, and when I went to Dublin, I, I don't know where I was in Croke Park, but I was definitely on the upper deck, <laughs> although it was in a front row. So that was kind of cool. And I was on um, Edge's side. Uh, yeah. So that was super cool. And I could see, but th- I was looking right at the screen. So, you know, you don't feel like you're missing anything. Once again, they, they brought it to the audience. And I think that, you know, was They've stated many times they strive to bring the people to them, make them feel like they're part of it. Instead of being little bitty ants, you know, way over there, you could see them. And they did it again with this tour. And um, I don't know. That's just my feeling on it. And then, but it it reinvented it. it. They were able to reinvent it, you know, when they got to 2011 for the Octoon Baby stuff. I think I was in Chicago for that one. And that's, I was pretty blown away by that. Yeah. And how good it sounded. Let's not forget how good it sounded. Um, because usually in a stadium, you expect junky sound, right? Um, yeah. Theirs was not. They uh, Maybe Christopher or Aaron, y'all can talk about this, but the, the speakers that they used in the system and the spacing uh, made it sound really good. Um, I thought outdoors. Um, I was surprised. The, the technology on the 360 tour really, I mean, it, it took... I think it, it, it took the concert experience, not just for you two, but the overall rock and pop music concert experience to another level. I mean, first of all, you had the size of the stage. It was the tallest stage ever. And then, mm. you know, it was it was the biggest stage. Plus, um, the in terms of sound, all of the speakers were up. They were they were yeah. not on the floor. So the stage was completely free. It, it, it had those two moving walkways, you know, oh, where yeah. Edge and Bono That's could... Cool could do their little interplay. So technologically that, that tour, you know, I mean, and, and U2 has always been at, at the forefront of tech and yeah. the 360 tour, regardless of what you think about the songs on it, um, was a revolutionary, was a revolutionary tour from just a production standpoint. I mean, that, that, that 360 degree screen too that expanded. Holy moly. I I mean, it. Oh, up and, the, and down. Yeah. And then they, they sang Zeropa or, and unforgettable fire from inside the screen. I mean, what? Who does that? I mean, to be honest with you, that the whole stage show is ten years on now. You think about it. At the time, it was from the future, and yeah. it still is from yeah. the future. And that's what they wanted, right? And she needs a big kiss. There it is. Uh, yes, and I and I I live in Houston, Texas, so I saw them here, of course, and they played your blue room. And of course they had gone to visit NASA down here. Um, so they were really into the whole space theme that on that show, but when they played your blue room, I was probably one of like 20 people in the audience who really got it. <laughs> okay. Maybe a hundred. A lot of people were doing beer breaks and bathroom breaks, but I was just so happy to talk about a deep cut. Mm-hmm. Aaron. Um, did, did Adam do his um, talking through that one? You know, the end. Did he uh, do that? Oh, I can't. I'm trying to remember. I'm going to have to listen to a, a I would remember if he did. We'll have to go find the video. Yeah, I feel like on he it, didn't, but, or they dubbed it, uh, is my my recollection. But 
Yeah, that I don't think yeah. she did it live, but that would be so sweet. Just like spotlight, everything goes dark. Adam just steps up to the mic and starts. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> it made me feel so incredibly jealous. That Be- Becky needs a song. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> it was good enough, but that would have been better. And they brought out Space Baby. You know, I call him Space Baby. You know, I mean, all the iconography mm-hmm. was yeah. they were starting to bring out from the AB era and Zeropa, like you know, and. We should talk about how this compares to some of that sound, the Zeropa, right? There's a lot of some talk about that. Um, there was at the time, right? You're talking about the influences. Oh well, yeah. I mean, I mean, this No Line is an experimental record, and you know, I, I again, it, I I think of it like a concept album. It, it's uh, you know, so and that's exactly what Zeropa was. Zeropa for me Absolutely. was, you know, I mean. I mean because it took you to sound that they started on Octung Baby, but then, I mean, really ran with it, right? Mm-hmm. And what made, I think what what made No Line not sit well with a lot of people was just how different it sounded from Atomic Bomb. And I don't think fans mm-hmm. were expecting a transitional album at that point. Right. You know, yeah. I, I thought, I, I think maybe fans were, were expecting more of a rock album and then yeah. a, a transition after no line but no line was the transition and you know yeah. um so we tend to pair um all that you can't leave behind and atomic bomb together as right. renaissance for the for for the 2000s and then all of a sudden no line comes and says all right everything we did on atomic bomb forget it and you know for us diehards you know we attach ourselves so strongly to an album and when they do something radical like that it it often takes us a long time to adjust. Which we should have been anticipating. Like the sort of trilogy aspect of U2 has often been yeah. talked about Actung Babies, Europa, and Pop. Yep. And then All That You Can't Leave Behind, just uh, Atomic Bomb. And then obviously something even more kind of weird, experimental should be coming, which, you know, in anticipation of whatever is coming next, <laughs> you would think maybe will happen again, but we'll see. I don't think the band, I think, I don't think follows that that um, progression that literally, but it kind of just has happened the last two cycles i yes. guess or whatever you want to call it yeah. collection of albums um so i guess just fans prepare yourself whatever songs of ascent or whatever the next thing that is that comes but um, yeah. don't freak out but uh yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well they were they were talking about songs of ascent while they were making this album um there's a photo yes in the box yes, they were they were <laughs> i went back through the book and it's on there like they have a whiteboard that they must have put up when they were recording in morocco it looked like and it says songs of ascent a couple of other things and then thankful for the day which i thought was kind of cool um but yeah they've been talking about that for so long as we know um mm-hmm. who knows if that'll ever show up <laughs> <laughs> we'll see maybe rick Our- rubin's working on it before yeah. <laughs> we're going to get to Mason's comments here in a second, but just before you want to uh, read off some of the other folks who who sent in tweets and stuff, which you can do by the way, if you send uh, use hashtag ask at you two on Twitter, send a you can send a comment in and it'll uh, automatically put it in our show notes here and we can talk about it on the show. But at Cashmaster Omega said the most underrated album, the only YouTube album that means more to me personally is Actung Baby. First four songs are among the best of their career. Three sixty tour was awesome. Wish they'd play some of it again in the future. At Care Dubois, I think is how you said it, has said, I have nice and not so nice things to say about this album, but that's less important than this. When it came out 10 years ago, I had a nasty head cold that stuck around for almost three weeks. And coincidentally, that happened at the same time this year. And I never get sick. <laughs> so who knows what that means? <laughs> oh, <laughs> exactly. no. Uh, uh, where are we here? At ha- Hallie Toller said, a fave is magnificent. Love the guitar solo and I don't call her. 
And Fiona, at Fiona Duffield said, Love Cedars of Lebanon, which I think is a yeah vastly underrated uh, song too that should get heard more. She likes pop or he likes pop, some great songs, but like pop, sorry, some great songs, but not a great album. Sorry, let me try this again. Like pop, some great songs, some not great songs, and an album with more work could have been really special. At Crony 2 said, could have been a classic with Joshua Tree and Actung Baby, but those middle three chart wannabe hits are brutal and embarrassing. You two, once again. Man, yeah. no love for those middle rockers. Yikes. A lot of people don't like them. Yeah. It's, uh, they said, you two, once again, compromise their quality by seeking popularity. I just, which is always funny to me. I think I, like they do mm-hmm. want to write a hit song. Like I think they're, but I don't know that they're like listening to the radio and then trying to like, how can we engineer a hit here? But uh, it's yeah, uh, but that's another discussion. It's when they go deep within themselves is when they find the gold. Strangely cold sounding, and uh, just a couple others at DB DSTBK said moment of surrender is unreal, and at forty dancing bear breathe was their favorite track. So um, let's jump to Mason now and see what he had to say. Hey there, everybody. This is Mason Merritt, your New York City correspondent. I just wanted to throw my two cents in and talk a little bit about No Line in the Horizon. Possibly, and if by possibly, I mean absolutely, the most important U2 album for me. It came out when I was 14 years old, and the Get On Your Boots music video was what got me into the band and made me pay attention to them for the first time. Now that it's 10 years later, it's just it's fascinating to see how this has stood out as something that reflects a bunch of different eras of U2, but not much more than that. It's sort of the last time that they made an album without a huge, cohesive, biographical theme to it. And I think because of that, it's one of their most thematically interesting to, to dive into. And musically, it's all over the place in the best possible way. It's got my favorite song ever on it. U uh, 2 song, at least, Mo and Surrender. And it has stand-up comedy. <laughs> Take that how you will. And to answer one of Chris's <laughs> questions he posed in the Slack channel, my boots are on. I've had them on for years. My feet are chafing. I can't feel my right pinky toe, but they're on. I'm dedicated. Thanks, guys. Uh, that's good. But that man has he has impeccable taste, I have to say. We love you, Mason. <laughs> Interesting. He brings up the thematic themes, and we haven't discussed that. But this album is very unique from Bono's perspective because he's predominantly he always sings from an I, I, I perspective from the first person. This is an album which is predominantly third person. Third person, yes. Absolutely. And lyrics. Nearly yes. every track is a third person uh, lyric. Yeah. And in fact, you know, I, I had written about Cedars of Lebanon on the um, on the, the review of the songs that we put on at U2.com. And I'd, you know, if you look at those lyrics, they're not lyrics. They're a poem that he's sung yeah. to yeah. a melody. There's no two ways about it. And that applies to nearly every single track in the album. Yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, Chris, about being a concept album. It's the probably the most biggest concept album out there. It's prog rock, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. You know, it really you, is. Prog rock done U2 style. Yeah, which absolutely. is Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the um, speaking of thematically, that's uh, that I was thinking about the themes of, of the songs when I was trying to come up with a different track order and um mm. i was actually just making it now on apple music i'll i'll, I'll publish it after <laughs> after that but um there's also a ton of imagery on this album yes. I, mean, I mean you know the title alone and 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 the cover image right and, and that, mm. that that vision of having no horizon yeah exactly right and then just it, it's 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 an album that that lives kind of outside itself almost mm. because of the third person uh, tone and all of the external references. Plus, you know, part of it re- was recorded 
outside of where they normally record, right? So there's there's a feeling of the other that is mm. very present on this album for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most certainly. Mm. All right. Everybody the other that. aspect as well, <laughs> just just writer. just something to mention as well, is that it does get in my nose a little bit about, you know, U2's, this album is not commercially, you know, big flop, blah, blah, blah. It sold nearly 6 million copies in, yeah. in 2009 alone. You know, it's nearly up there to 6 million. It was the seventh best-selling album of 2009. It made wow. number one in 26 countries. No other U2 album has had as many number ones in all these different countries. You know, it's... It's not a flop. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, relative to Joshua Tree's what thirteen yeah, it, million, you know, but, I mean, in, in so proportion to the time, you know, his, right, his, his experience has done one point three million. Yes, yeah. in in best part of eighteen months. So you know, it's it's all relative, isn't it? It it's sure is. Perspective is a is mm. a crazy thing. Hmm. Yeah, and it's still good to know. Uh, either by actual gross or gross adjusted for inflation. Their 360 tour is still the highest grossing tour of all yeah. time. Yeah. So 700, what, 20 million or something like that? I mean, gross, yeah. that's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, yeah. remember, it went on for two years and it was in stadiums, but also still, true. they sold them out, I think, every yeah. show pretty, pretty much. And weren't they the first to live stream an entire concert on YouTube? Yeah. Because they, they, they live streamed the uh, from the Rose yeah. Bowl. Yeah, that, that, yeah October that, was, of, that was eventually okay. the, the official release, wasn't it? Official release DVD. Yeah, of the which, tour. Yeah, which turned out really well. To tell too. you, that's the only one live release that they've offered in the last number of tours that I haven't bought. Yeah, actually, me too. No, I, don't, I don't have I that one. I mean, I, I watched it like yeah. when they were streaming it, and I was like, right. yeah, but I never bought it. I I have a bunch of other stuff, but I just was yeah. like kind of done with yeah. it. I don't know why. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> It is like the the num- the dollars don't obviously tell how good something is necessarily, but it's just an interesting discussion because the tour, you know, did you, Becky, you brought up the idea of how long it went, but actually they had 110 shows, which among the top 10 tours grossing all time is neck like almost the lowest number of shows per. So you can say like the price per ticket and obviously how many people they fit in the show, all that kind of stuff was amongst the highest. The average attendance per show was 66,000 people. So you get. You know, compared to, uh, let's just pick one here, uh, Ed Sheeran's <laughs> tour, the plus mo- or divide tour, whatever that one's thirty one thousand people per show. So like you, you're doubling the amount of people wow. in the stadium or right. in the room, right? So obviously you can make a lot more money <laughs> doing that. Yeah, I mean, th- so. th- th- there were one hundred and ten thousand people at the Rose Bowl show. I, I mean, can you, literally <laughs> a sea of people. Yeah. I know. I can't even begin I to imagine that. Well, and I think in Dublin there were around eighty. Was it closer to eighty? Mm. Um, because they filled the pitch. Uh, Aaron, I, you were probably at some of those. I don't. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. I mean, and 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 even even Croke Park. You see, you have Hill sixteen up at Croke Park. You can't push the the they couldn't put the claw all the way back. But oh, it's that's a, right. Yeah. It's a huge stadium. It's the fourth largest stadium in Europe. Is Croke Park? It's but enormous. It, yeah, but you know what? Did, didn't the show wasn't it completely different as well? Because no matter where you were you could see from a different perspective and from the atmosphere was so completely different as well. It was for the first time you had a show outdoors and you're looking through the stage, but you can see the fans behind reacting the way that you're reacting. And it's just a complete unique experience from a concert perspective that I had never experienced before. And I've been doing 30 years with the concerts by that point. (laughs) For 20 years, probably. No, 30. Yeah. Um, I'm getting old. Um, yeah. You know, it's just so so completely completely unique 
um, in, that, yeah. in that perspective from a fan's own, from a, in somebody who's attending a concert, it was so overwhelming, you know, as much it as, was. I, to be honest with you, as Zoo TV was, really was. Right, well, yeah, you know, and, and it was cool. And for a band as big as you two, first of all, and then to do it in a stadium, but to have a theater in the round feel. So to yeah. have, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was, you're with 80,000 people, but everyone has a really good view, which you never get that in a stadium. And everyone can hear it really, really well because the sound was really good for a, for a stadium show. Right. So, because they wanted you to feel like you were right there. And exactly. they did. And that was the magic of, or that, that was part of the magic of that tour was no matter where you were in that stadium, you felt like you were really close to the stage. And I, I have fond memories of that uh, tour because that was the first time that I um, I did GA and I waited all day and I got mm. in the inner circle <laughs> and I got to hear my favorite songs from the inner circle. And I mean, that that was an amazing, amazing experience. Yeah. Like to hear streets and to be one of those people doing that. <laughs> I, yeah. I wanted to do that and I did that and it was awesome. And you know, I I, yeah. I got to cross that off of my bucket list. So every YouTube fan should have at least one of those, I agree. Right? Totally. Yeah, totally. Oh. Yeah, that'd be <laughs> yeah, a oh my gosh. Future discussion, a future a topic of discussion for the show is the YouTube bucket list yeah. items and, and what's what's remaining and <laughs> what's next for, for various <laughs> That was so. an amazing tour just all the way around. Yeah. All right. Well, I think the that's a great point to end the moment of No Ender was the name of our episode <laughs> last time we talked <laughs> about this album. So I think there's some complaints about the tour ending song maybe uh, from some some uh, <laughs> folks at yeah, YouTube. <laughs> Shall go unnamed, uh, but anyways, we'll we'll end it now before people get too annoyed with us going on and on and on. But uh, maybe a follow up questions, maybe of comments that we didn't discuss, things we didn't uh, cover that you think we missed, and uh, we'd love to hear about them. If you can, if you tweet at at, at you two, it's twitter.com slash atu two, and you can use hashtag ask at you two. That'll get you right into the the show notes for the the episodes to come. We're on a little bit of a like just like you two, kind of like a break and when we're inspired we'll put something out almost like you know if there's a concert we want to go to or play at kind of like you two we'll we'll gather the band back together but um obviously once you two gears up for more with more stuff whenever that happens we'll also gear up with more episodes so keep it uh keep us subscribed in your podcast player and of course watch twitter and and the uh, website at youtube.com for for details on future recordings and future episodes um let's go around here and just uh, where can folks find you on the on the internet if they disagree or strongly agree or or just want to give you a high five uh with a u2 360 memory uh becky starting with you where where can folks reach out um at b myers on twitter all right and aaron um i'm at ivanobe i-v-a-n-o-b-e and chris on twitter <laughs> christopher how about you and I am on Twitter as well at CJS Endrinal. So C J S E N D R I N A L on Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. And uh, yeah, like I said, twitter.com slash ATU2, Facebook.com slash ATU2com, Instagram.com slash ATU2com. There's still still content coming out, still stuff to read, and especially if you're a YouTube fan, if maybe the podcast is somehow the only way you're connecting with the site. Be sure to check us out on any of the other social platforms you happen to frequent. And uh, like I said, we'll, lo- we'll uh, 
find uh, or get Christopher's link to the his new album sorting on Apple Music, and someone wants to do it on Spotify accordingly as well, you can tweet at me. I'm iChris on on Twitter. Send me a link, and I'll add it to the show notes for future viewers, listeners of the show. And uh, if you have a second to leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts, that definitely helps get the word out about the show as a fun show to listen to for YouTube fans. So thank you for listening. Thanks for watching. See you next time. Bye.